Welcome to the BearCast, the Building Efficiency Resources podcast. We are the leader in the real news and updates and information for professionals in the building performance industry. And after a brief hiatus, I'm back here with my uh, main man, Sandy Gallo, and we are going to be speaking with the folks from the Passive House Institute US. We're going to have Lisa White, as well as Isaac Elnikovate talking about the history of the program and some of the really amazing things that are going on in the world of passive buildings here in North America. So, Sandy, it's been a little bit uh, before since we talked last. How you been doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. It's uh, back to normal Florida weather again, so I'm happy about that, you know, 70s and 80s every day. And um, I'm doing great, Chris. I'm doing doing really well. Nice. Well, I'm staring out a window, sort of looking at uh, Lake Ontario. But we've got lots to cover here, Sandy. You know, it's been, ooh, you know, two, three weeks since we've had uh, an episode. So we got plenty of news to share here. So a agreement that's come out uh, between nine states to boost the adoption of heat pumps uh, to basically 90% of all equipment by 2040, uh, which is a significant pledge. Now, again, we talked about these pledges that, you know, people make them, you know, you make them today and hey, 15 years from now, they were supposed to get it done. Uh, I think it's, it's easier said than done. And, you know, people have, you know, short memories. They don't really remember what they pledged to 15 years ago, but this one seems somewhat real, you know, it's a kind of a strange consortium of states you got a bunch of people from uh out east okay well minus this one yeah so you know and then and then you get the, they decide to put them in alphabetical order here so you know, california colorado uh those are out west and as is oregon um so it's interesting to see who's on here and it's also interesting to sort of see who's not you know like you kind of think that you know if you had California and you had Oregon, you'd kind of assume what you might have Washington. Um, so I don't know uh, why they chose not to get involved with this. Um, if you have Maine and you got Massachusetts, you might expect to see Vermont or Connecticut. But um, kind of interesting here. How I thought it was interesting that there was no southern states, you know, um, at all. Right. You know, yeah. I, mean, I, I thought that was kind of weird. Deep pumps are even more of a no-brainer there, so why not? But uh, yeah. I don't know. I guess it's it's sort of a messaging thing, right? You know, so you know, southern states may not want to join up with a bunch of uh, a bunch of blue states and make a, a commitment to something that sort of is is pushing a green agenda, perhaps. Um, anyways, not legally binding, doesn't commit anybody to really do anything. We've heard we've heard this before, um, you know. But you know, the goal is that you know, you know, we're more than fifty percent of equipment in these states by 2030 which is you know a mere you know six years away from now you know is going to be heat pumps i mean that's yeah that's kind of a big deal um and, and i think the so, bigger deal is the 90 percent by 2040 i think that's even a bigger deal you know yeah well you know i mean here's the thing i guess again you know 2040 to me feels like it's far enough away where it's like sure why not you know i guess i mean i guess what let's shoot for the moon um but, you know, if you think about six in six meager years and you're taking some kind of cold places, 
I mean, Colorado is kind of cold. They're the standard of practice in residential new construction in Colorado still today probably is gas furnaces. Am I wrong? No, I think you're right. Yep. Yeah. Or even in Maryland, you know, kind of cold. A lot of gas. Uh, yeah, you know, and and yeah, and they use they use gas and and I there's a lot of gas there. programs in the Mid Atlantic. There's a lot of gas programs. Yep. Um, and and again, this is this is sales. So this isn't even just talking about new construction. So you know, if you think about sales, you know, what's the real market in equipment sales? That's it's existing systems, right? Yep. Changeouts. By far. So so what? So, so we're not just talking about like let's electrify new buildings. This is talking about like you know people who have their, you know, ninety percent furnace, you know, from you know the twenty twenty two thousands or whatever. You know, all of a sudden it's 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 aged out at thirty years, and then people are going to be putting in heat pumps. So it's very ambitious. Um, I'm interested to know exactly how their framework is going to push this because. Uh, you know, there's a little bit more that goes into heat pumps. And again, we've talked this topic almost to death, um, you know, but there's a lot that goes into the design of these systems, the installation. The one thing I've become well, a little bit... Well, that was the one thing I think, though, Chris, I don't mean to interrupt you. Sorry there. I mean to cut you off. But I think one part that's prevalent there is that you talk about workforce development in this. And I think, again, that falls in line with what we've been talking about the whole time is that, you know, it's not a magic box. You know, people have to be trained how to install these things properly um, and design them. And, you know, um, so I was glad to see that. You know, there's also a lot of talk about the IRA money in here, which makes sense. Um, but, you know, they say they're going to develop tools, but it doesn't really get into what kind of tool. You know what I mean? So I, I guess it's just a fledgling thing right now. But, um, you know, it, it talks about the same things that we've been talking about all along, which is the IRA and workforce development, you know, trying to train people how to install these systems and they actually identified in this article that that was one of the biggest hurdles were the installers and i agree with that yeah well that is the biggest challenge right because you know let's put ourselves in the perspective of a rank and file hvac contractor right you're in the business of making money what's one of your most profitable services talking about existing home changeouts yes yeah 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 so changeouts you know because you know the new construction market is actually very tough on trades people misunderstand that they think people are making low profit margin too yeah low profit my my understanding is it just it's keeping people busy so that then you know when they have you know the existing homes work you know which is more lucrative um you know service-based work and then again changeouts why changeouts because you can buy a piece of equipment as a contractor at wholesale rates for you know you know substantially less than what their sort of you know MSRP would be for a consumer, you know, and then you mark it up by fifty percent or or more, and and it essentially, you know, especially if you're not changing the configuration of the equipment, you're just swapping out box for box, bada bing, bada boom. It's pretty easy, really, frankly speaking. Going from a gas furnace to a heat pump is not necessarily that straightforward, and there's going to be more consumer education that's necessary. Again, I think this is a great goal. Um, I'm in favor of it because I do think that electrifying uh, heating 
has a lot of benefit. But, you know, we also got to make sure we do this in the right order. You know, before people start electrifying heat, we really want to be reducing our loads, as we've talked about. And that kind of takes us into our next article here. So this was shared to us by our friend, Tony Lasanti, um, our guest from a couple of episodes ago, where we were talking about um, his experience with grid uh, utility management in New York State and you know some of the ambitious goals in New York State as it pertains to electrification. And so you know he shared this article that now operators, electric utilities in New York, are starting to feel the squeeze in winter as well as in summer. So, you know, it basically used to be that, you know, the grid was sized for the cooling load. And that's, you know, that was shared to us by Tony. Makes sense. Um, you know, you got people air conditioning um, and that ends up, you know, causing there to be a, a peak demand somewhere there probably in July or August. Well, now, you know, the growth of electricity demand in winter at this current level is expected to exceed the growth of demand in the summer. Um, and so basically, you know, pretty soon by 2015 or 2050, winter demand is expected to surpass the electricity demand in summer. So that's pretty interesting because you know, we kicked this off by this episode off by sort of saying things are getting a little bit warmer, seemingly, um, you know, and we're not getting as much snow. And uh, so in a lot of ways, you think, hey, you know, the climate's moderating. So a place like New York State, nah, not a big deal. You know, the heat loads are going to be smaller, but not necessarily. This article is making it out like, you know, essentially, you know, utility providers are preparing for a future where their peak demand is coming in the dead of winter. What do you think about that, Sandy? Well, I think it makes sense. I mean, if you're going to electrification and heat pump, you know, utility demand is going to be greater in a winter because you have more colder months probably up there than you do hotter months. You know, I mean, if you actually looked it out and, it, it, you know, heat, you know, people don't, you know, I don't think people used um, heat any differently. You know what I mean? So, you know, when it starts getting cold in the end of September, you know, people are starting to use heat now instead of, you know, you know, in October. I mean, I froze to death on many Thanksgivings in November, you know, up up north. So, you know, it was cold. So, I mean, it does make sense. Um, I, I think it does present a whole, you know, like we talked about in, in the episode with Tony. You know, it does present a whole lot of problems with demand. And, you know, a lot of those, you know, like they, they go into this article about how a lot of those supplementary ways of, of supplying the grid with energy in the summertime necessarily won't work or will be worn out in the wintertime because they're using them, you know, twice as much. So I thought it was, you know, I think it ties right into what we were talking about with Tony is that we do need to address grid issues and we're going to need to address them pretty fast. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, the article makes it clear, you know, there's a lot of contributing factors, you know, data centers, you know, so all of a sudden there's there's a lot more consumption going on, even though we've basically made impacts in terms of efficiency. Now there's other things that use a lot of energy, but, you know, they're saying a major contributor to this trend is the conversion of fuel fired 
heating systems to electricity based heating systems. And that just makes sense. You know, and the article says, hey, you know, heat pumps, they're very efficient, except when temperatures go below 30 degrees. And obviously, you know, there's better heat pumps out there. Um, You know, but it all goes down to design and selection, you know, and this is, I'll tell you what, I'm a little bit nervous about how much there's this vogue trend pushing for heat pumps not because i think heat pumps are problematic but there's there's a lot of not very good heat pumps you know or there are there's fine you know or maybe they're more appropriate for you know warmer climates you know down south you know where very rarely you're seeing you know severe weather under 30 you know but i i kind of feel like we have the risk of homogenizing what these systems are and people just go oh yeah just throw in a heat pump you know and then they select the you know 14 sear you know eight and a half hspf system in upstate new york you know and then all of a sudden people are getting killed with energy bills so right. you know and and the system can't really keep up so you know devil's in the details sandy as you and i know but you know it's, it's not just a new york state thing you know uh the article points out that the tennessee valley authority uh, which uh, basically, you know, is the main utility provider uh, in a southern seven-state region in, you know, m- mainly the south, uh, southeast, and they had their highest peak ever in the dead of winter, um, and so you know they were able to handle it, but you know they have a lot more grid-side management that they're having to focus on for these cold snaps. That, as you pointed out, while up north, we may be getting a little bit warmer and more moderate. It seems like, you know, we're having more examples of extreme cold weather in places that were less used to that previously. So kind of interesting stuff. Very so what can, so. We do, what can we do about this, you know, issue? You know, is there anything we can do, you know, in order to address, you know, the fact that we've got these extreme peaks? We can adopt better building codes. Um, and so quick update here in the world of building codes, Illinois has recently adopted a version of the 2021 IECC. It went into effect for all new buildings as of January 1st, 2024. Uh, it is basically the 2020, uh, the 2021 IECC as written with a couple of very minor uh weakening amendments but but for all intents and purposes they really adopted the code almost as written so now um similar to massachusetts illinois has basically moved to have a stretch code um which municipalities can choose to opt into the stretch code has been in development here uh, over the last few years, I think originally the, the goal was to time it where that the stretch code would come out at the same time as the the base code. Uh, but they had to spend more time uh, fine tuning it. And being someone who was, um, you know, sort of moderately involved in the process as a public commenter, I'm actually very happy with what they came up with. So, you know, essentially the goal that they're trying to push for. Um, is an EUI, and we'll just focus on residential. They want an EUI, basically, of about 50% of the 2006 IECC, um, you know, when you compare apples to apples. And EUI, you know, 
we don't talk about that about EUIs in the hers industry, but EUIs are basically just the energy intensity per square foot of the building. So if you've got a 2,000 square foot house, you know, and you're using how many ever, you know, kilowatt hours, you know, on an annualized basis, you know, then you can basically divide that total consumption by your square footage, and that gives you your EUI. So as you make building codes more efficient, then we can say, well, we're targeting a reduction in the EUI. And I'll say again, you know, for, for us being in the HERS industry and we're used to quantifying a lot of different things, we don't talk about EUIs very much. Um, but in the policy world, that's like the wonky term. That's what they're looking for is a reduction in EUI. So uh, 50% is the goal by June 30th of this year. So basically, you know, kicking in July of this year, buildings are, you know, that are in these opt-in stretch code communities are going to have to be hitting this more advanced version of the energy code, which is targeting 50% savings versus the 2006 IECC. Sandy, what's another way that in our industry we might quantify that goal? URI. Yeah, sure. Uh, an ERI of 50. So let's take a look. What did they come up with with their residential uh, stretch code? So uh, going forward, we'll skip all the, the different um, administrative chapters and we'll just go to the good stuff in section 401. So um, it kind of looks like the standard code, but of course the devil's in the detail. So there's a prescriptive option a total building performance option, aka the simulated performance alternative. And then there's an ERI option. Um, I guess I probably shouldn't have skipped too much because it, it's worth mentioning that uh, the code does specifically make reference to above code programs as being equivalent, specifically buildings built to passive house standards. So if you build a passive house, you're good to go. Otherwise, you have to go through either the prescriptive path plus the energy package options uh, from R408, or you got to go through the total building performance option, or you got to go through the ERI. So um, what do we got in terms of a uh, prescriptive approach? Well, you know, not too much when it comes to the building envelope. There were no updates to the 2021 IECC for the building envelope. But there is information that deals with equipment. Uh, so, you know, different controls specifically for equipment, um, you know, for water heating and space heating. And then a lot more inf information that is required for Section R404 dealing with uh, electric vehicle power infrastructure. Um, you know, electric readiness of the building, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so in a lot of ways, you know, this is kind of priming on a prescriptive basis that buildings are going to be more, you know, basically set up for a, uh, you know, net zero electrified future. On a performance basis, uh, pretty similar to what the base code is, except that you have to be 71% uh, 
of the site energy of the reference design. So typically for those who do performance code compliance, usually, you know, basically your your you know your proposed home or your aka your rated home for the performance path just has to equal the or be less than the uh, proposed energy use of the reference home. For this, we got to be 71% of it. So basically it's saying you got to save almost 30% on a performance basis relative to that reference design. Um, okay, well, that's a little bit tricky. I'm not sure if yeah. I would want to go that path if I was a builder. Let's see what we got for the ERI. Did they leave it? Did they gut it? Uh, let's check, check it out. Okay, I found this to be very interesting. Our goals uh, for the ERI, if you do an ERI with um, an all-electric home, then basically the ERI targets are the same as the base code. There's no required improvement. If you have combustion equipment, so you know if you have you know fossil fuel-based uh, space heating or water heating, now you got to drop down to basically an ERI or a HERS index of 50. So that goes back to that, you know, 0.5 uh, EUI target being, you know, 50% of the 2006 IECC. As we all know, the ERI is a calculation based off of comparison to the 2006 IECC. So look at that. You know, if you're building with, you know, furnaces or gas-fired water heaters, basically you got to have a HERS index of 50 to meet this stretch code. You know what, if I'm a builder, I'm probably gonna kick the tires on that option because it seems like it's a little bit more straightforward, something that I'm more used to. And I'll just say this, this is a huge opportunity for energy raters. You know, the state of Illinois, yeah. I hate to say it, but the state of Illinois hasn't always been the most welcoming environment for energy raters. It's been a tough road to hoe for a lot of uh, raters out there selling the merits of the HERS index and the ERI, you know, Illinois typically is kind of lagging behind the, the nation in terms of the penetration of HERS indices or ERI ratings. So I don't know, what do you think about this, Sandy? Do you think that builders may, may kick the tires a little bit more on the, the ERI? I have no doubt about it, especially if the raters present it, right, as, as a co-compliance option, because I think it does make sense. And I mean, if I was a builder, I would definitely be looking at ERI, you know, especially in this case with the Illinois new stretch code. Um, you know, we we converted many, many people over our careers to doing ERI or performance path, you know. And, you know, once they they understand it and you show them what you can do with it and, and how what a compliance, good compliance method it is, most people are sold. So I would say, yeah, I, I think this is awesome. And I think it opens up the door for uh, HERS Raiders in Illinois, for sure. Yeah, the other thing I like about this too is they got rid of some of the goofiness with uh, with the, the base code of, of the ventilation alterations of the calculation of the ERI. Uh, and we won't go into that brutal history, but if you know, you know, um, you know, some goofiness happened in both the 2018 IECC as well as the 2021 that kind of mucked up the ERI calculation. Basically, they're saying it's a straight ERI or basically a straight HERS index. Um, and, you know, so, you know, I think that that's a pretty good option. So, you know, I used to live in Illinois. My, I have family in Illinois. Uh, it is a state that stays near and dear to my heart. And I'm really pulling for our HERS Raider partners 
in the state of Illinois to be able to get out there and start to sell the merits of what they're doing. Because, you know, I will say as these goals, these loftier goals for EUI savings continue to happen. So, you know, because it's not just about, you know, July of this year, all of a sudden in in another year and a half, then homes are going to have to be even that much more better. So how much you go about demonstrating that, Sandy? <laughs> That's going to be a tough one, I can tell you that. But I, yeah, one I thing mean, I would do is, uh, but I would, I, the one way I would demonstrate that is with using 310, right? I mean, that would help you along. So, I mean, that would be the first method I would take. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, basically in 2026, you know, they're going to be looking at in stretch code communities at, at hers indices essentially of 40. Uh, and then all of a sudden in 2029, hers and of the low thirties and then, you know, the mid twenties, you know, you're only going to get to these levels basically with heat pumps, uh, and, or with onsite renewable power. Um, it's pretty much almost impossible to get down into the low forties or into the thirties with combustion based equipment. It just, there's just not that much savings. And yeah, to your point, if you combine a heat pump installation with ResNet uh, HVAC grading procedures, it is extremely potent in terms of its savings on the HERS index up to, you know, six or more points potentially. So, you know, not necessarily something that people got to be paying a whole lot of attention to right now, but you know, we got some big opportunities coming up here, Sandy. You know, a couple episodes we saw New York State going all electric in 2026. Uh, in Illinois, you know, at least the stretch code communities, they're going to be really pushing all electric buildings in 2026. And Massachusetts is already going there. They have a stretch code that's kicking in this year that is pushing electrifying heating. And, you know, basically you're going to have to have indices in the 40s. So this stuff, it's no longer the thing of the future. It's the thing of now. Knocking on the door. Yeah. Yeah. So time to get prepared, Raiders. Time to go get your 310 credential from good old building efficiency resources. You don't got to take it through us, but we have had a lot of success in teaching it. And, uh, you know, it definitely, especially once you start getting into uh, heat pumps, it makes a big difference on the index. Or if you're in a uh, a cooling dominated climate, then you know, then honestly, it makes a big difference just in terms of cooling savings and can really you know help the HERS index as well. So um, plus, let's you know forget about the HERS index. You know, the biggest reason why we're doing this stuff is again, what is it about, Sandy? Properly designed systems, properly selected systems. And then properly installed systems with testing and verification. Isn't that what it's all about, ultimately, Sandy? It's what it's ultimately all about. And if we do all of those things, we'll be successful. And that's what we got to push for, folks, because it is coming. It is, it is getting put into the code. It is happening now. Not every single state, but many states are pushing for this. Got states pushing for you know, ambitious heat pump equipment change out goals. We have states making their energy code require or practically require heat pumps. So we 
have to get it right because again, we already have the people who manage the grid and these are not politicians. These are not people picking sides. These are just people doing the math and saying, hey, we have to manage these loads. If we get it wrong, it's not good. So let's step up to the plate, let's get it right. Let's figure out how to do this stuff because uh, that's what our job is for people. I'm, uh, I'm excited about the prospects here. So I, I would just add to that, that you know, never before in all the years that you and I've been in this business, has it been more important for a Raider to be on his game? And I think that, you know, as Raiders, this is a giant opportunity, but with a caveat that you have to be prepared. And you're going to get prepared by education and training. You know, so, um, you know, keep that in mind. You know, at, you know, at some point, you're either going to be ahead of the pack or behind the pack or left behind. And I think that Raiders really have a giant opportunity coming up over the next few years everywhere. Uh, to have a huge impact on on the outcome of all of this. So that's all I would end that with. No doubt. Well, you know, and I'll say one big opportunity we have to get it right is through the adoption of passive building standards. Let's make these buildings as energy efficient <clears throat> as possible before we electrify them so that we are not doing you know, are putting undue stress on the electrical grid. If we smash those heat loads so that they are, you know, one-tenth or one-twentieth uh, uh, of what we would anticipate that they would be with a normal building, if you're essentially eliminating those heat loads for all practical purposes, as well as moderating cooling loads, that is the way to get electrification right. And that's why we're bringing on our good friends from the Passive House Institute US for segment two. So we'll go ahead and roll into that and talk with those folks then. We are very privileged to have two esteemed colleagues joining us from the Passive House Institute US. Uh, my colleagues, Lisa White and Isaac Elnikovay. How's it going, y'all? Thanks for joining the BearCast. Good to be here. Oh, great. Thanks Welcome, for guys. Yeah, so um, for those who don't know, uh, I, I, I have a personal history with Vias. Um, I was uh, their QA manager for their residential program, basically working with the Raiders uh, as they were submitting projects to make sure that they were I had consistent documentation and good technical support uh, in a subcontracted role, basically between 2013 and mm, I don't know 2018, something like that, until I passed off the torch to our good buddy on the Bearcast, Tony Lasanti. Tony has taken over the reins and and works with uh, with the folks at Theus and the Raiders and whatnot. Uh, but you know, I'm still involved with Theus as a instructor um, for their Verifier program. We just had a class of 25 people in Boston taking the verifier training. It was awesome. It was so cool to be back in front of people and to teach that class. Um, I was sort of a, a key you know, person who helped to develop that training. And we've been teaching it on Zoom. And I've been saying, I don't like teaching it on Zoom anymore. Please don't make me do it. I really want to get out in front of people. And Isaac was like, you know, you probably should go to Boston. Because 
we're going to have the need for more verifiers and we're going to tell you why. Um, but before we go there, you know, Lisa, just maybe give us a little bit for those who don't know about Theus. Tell us a little bit about Theus, the history, and what makes uh, the program unique and special. Sure, I'll try to be brief here. So we're a 501c3 nonprofit, and at least when I joined about 12 years ago, the mission was to make high-performance passive building mainstream. We've kind of revised our mission a little bit because we're already we're already reaching that goal. Um, and now our mission is that every building supports the health of people on the planet. So a little broader and um, really thinking beyond just passive building. Um, it's a little bit about the history, uh, thinking of how to make passive building mainstream. Uh, we had to think of kind of all the different parties involved. Um, so we started and set out by our executive director built her own home. Um, the passive building standards uh, back in early 2000s. And then we started um, applying these principles in the US and learned over time that the uh, basically the, the passive building principles work differently in different climates. So we set out to create a passive building standard for North America that works within the, the climates of North America. And the first version of that was released in 2015. Um, alongside that, maybe the, the three years prior is what I'm most familiar with. We also did some important things with our standard, which was partner with the US organizations, the EPA, uh, Department of Energy, Energy Star, and Indoor Plus, um, and ResNet to get the quality assurance elements um, into the program. Um, while all of this was happening too, we realized we also needed to train the people that were designing and constructing and verifying these buildings. So the consultant training, the designers, architects, engineers came a little bit earlier, trained all those people, but realized we didn't have the workforce that knew how to construct um, these buildings. So then developed a builder training program that launched in 2012. And I think the Raider training just after that and the verifier maybe just a few years after that for the larger scale scale construction. So it kind of all grew organically as we saw the market needs develop with uh, kind of in tandem with the, the standard. Um, let's see, the organization itself has grown dramatically in the past few years from a staff perspective. I think we are over double what we were three years ago, maybe four years ago. We're in the 20s now, which is still pretty low, but we were for a while a fairly small organization with a pretty wide reach. Um, I, I think we are still. Those, I remember those small meetings at your office. Uh, yes, it, yes. It was, it was you and Kat and me and a couple of mics and yep. not many <laughs> other people really. Um, no, you know. We, yeah. We all wore a lot of hats. So the exciting part is that we're getting to distribute those hats and really form. Um, more solid kind of departments and working groups that can help propel this forward. Um, and it it is, it's very exciting growth to see, but we're also still small relative to the market demand as that keeps increasing. And we'll probably talk a bit more about that uh, later on in this. Yeah, you know, and, and Isaac, in some ways, I mean, you were almost a, a catalyzing presence. It was almost it was right about the time that I was stepping out of being the QA manager. You kind of stepped into the organization, and you and I had a, a previous relationship from a from a from a past life. Um, you know, but you seemed like you joined the organization, and then like right after that, it was like boom. You know, in terms of staff development and whatnot. So what's been your experience now? What you've been with the organization for five years? 
four and a half, yeah, four and a half years. Um, yeah, I started, I think, uh, well, I started in September 2019, uh, right around the time, as Lisa's saying, where they were transitioning. Um, and I had, you know, I came in with kind of more, more or less two hats. Um, one, as you were talking about, I, I came in and started doing a lot of the work on the QA uh, as uh, under Tony Lasanti, um, you know, moving those projects forward. Um, but as you just kind of implied, I have a I have a policy background, and so I started also working on policy across the country, kind of with the aim as as per the per the for FIA's mission to really start trying to make it mainstream and, and using policy as a lever. So we really started working on um, systematizing and quantifying incentive programs, basically to get uh, people, start getting people over the hump, that original hump where they are uncomfortable and unfamiliar and give them some, some incentive, usually monetary. Um, worked in with uh, a lot of the work on the low income low-income housing tax credit because we were finding that um, multifamily was a really interesting niche spot for, for FIAS um, along with the single family. And then um, as you know, you implied, uh, I have a background in energy codes uh, and started working on, on incorporating FIAS into energy codes around the country. Um, and that's been really, and that's been these kinds of three things have kind of, along with, I might add, the, the what subsequently came as the, as the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which works very much in conjunction with, with FIAS, um, has really started moving the market um, towards FIAS in a number of places. And okay. so. Excellent. Yeah, you know, and I, I I guess, you know, part of what I want to point out here, too, is just, you know, for those who don't live and breathe passive buildings, you know, what what is the sort of the the essence? What are we trying to do? And I, honestly, I think that y'all's website has come a long way. And I love this branding here. You know, zero is the goal. This is the means. Uh, and I love this because, you know, Sandy and I have spent a lot of time on the Bearcast talking about the need to sequence electrification appropriately. So, you know, Sandy and I are both environmentalists. We want clean air, clean water, uh, clean food, all the rest of that. We're not gonna have that. We're not, we don't have that currently with our, our current fossil fuel driven economy. Uh, it causes a lot of negative impacts to human health and the health of ecosystems. So uh, Sandy and I are huge proponents of electrifying buildings to get to net zero uh, across the board, but you can't just go and throw heat pumps in buildings and and act like they're a magic pill. And there's a risk we feel that uh, a lot of the branding of electrification risks potentially watering down the actual practical challenges, the practical challenges of design and installation of heat pumps and and electrifying buildings, and more importantly phasing appropriately, getting your loads down low enough to the point where it makes sense to electrify buildings from both a cost standpoint as well as from a grid side management. Because, you know, if we just throw a lot of heat pumps 
not poorly, not well designed, not well selected, and not well installed into not well insulated or air sealed buildings with a lot of thermal bridges, we're potentially going to cause a lot of problems. That's we're concerned about that, and we're trying to get people to. I know everybody wants to kiss their heat pump water heater and say that that's good enough, but I'm telling you, folks, we got to think critically about this. And and this is not just because of my history working with BS, but I truly believe that BS is the means. Um, you know, the genesis qua of the program is essentially smashing heat loads, almost practically eliminating them, and then being very thoughtful about the design principles for the other major loads. Uh, space cooling loads, water heating loads, uh, as well as the selection of, um, you know, the other, you know, electrical loads in the building, lighting and appliances, process loads, et cetera. You know, how did Lisa, how did you all get to this branding? Because I just think it's great, you know, and I think it really does sum up kind of the value proposition for Fias. Sure. I'd like to like just echo what you have in an echo or said in an echo chamber, like it's so critical to reduce the loads before electrifying. This is something I've been focusing on over the past few years. But really, we got to this branding because it became evident in the market that net zero was this like ultimate goal. But um, or at least a few years ago, I don't think that's our real goal. But um, it became evident that was a goal. But if you don't conserve first, um, net zero really isn't it's not a good goal. Like we can't forget about the conservation. We can't forget about the low loads and we can't forget about the other things that aren't even energy related that bring health and durability and quality to a building. So we're like, okay, yeah, maybe net zero is the goal, but not if you don't do all these other things first. Um, and the challenge for me with net zero is you can have any building and add renewable energy and it can be net zero. So to me, it's a watered brand. Um, so we want to make sure you take this conservation and quality first approach to zero. And that's really what FIAS is trying to be. Um, and the other, other big thing that FIAS brings is um, the opportunity for many buildings that maybe didn't have enough roof area to be zero before conservation. If you apply um, the FIAS principles to pass a building standard and reduce energy loads by, say, 50%, now, you know, all of a sudden you have an approved space and net zero becomes achievable. So it, it kind of just all fits together nicely, but we didn't want conservation to be left in the past when zero, net zero was the goal. Yeah, well, so critical because uh, this, you know, grid management is going to be really critical. I mean, obviously, you know, we're moving to electrify transportation at the same time that we want to electrify heating and water heating, even in cold climates. And those are ambitious, but righteous goals, but yeah. they could be done wrong. And yeah. that's, you know, Sandy and I have gotten a little bit of flack on the Bearcast where it seems like we're, we're pumping the brakes on electrification or we don't like heat pumps. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's just that we have enough experience to know that if done not so thoughtfully, we could potentially get ourselves into some trouble where all of a sudden there's a lot of consumer and political backlash against a lot of these concepts. So, Sure. And if I can just add some recent research we did at FIAS um, under the AI Upjohn grant, I don't know if you've heard about this, but we essentially, um, first we looked at, you know, all the implications of electrification on load profiles, but really with the goal of looking at a hypothetical neighborhood and electrifying it 
existing or if you upgraded the neighborhood first and then electrified it and what kind of like the grid level impacts would be of that. And so we looked at this hypothetical neighborhood in Milwaukee, gave it all the same electrified equipment and then said, if I wanna power this neighborhood on renewable energy with the existing neighborhood electrified and with the, the FIAS compliant neighborhood electrified and it's, it's exponential the differences in renewable generation capacity and energy storage needed to support the existing neighborhood with all the same, you know, we'll call it high performance equipment versus the FIAS compliant enclosures first. So we really need to think about that in the energy transition. And if we're all the new loads swapping out fossil fuel generation with renewables, like it, it's all works together. Um, and still the low load is the most important part. Well, yeah, and you know, and it's not just about energy either. Uh, you know, no. there's a really cool study that came out um, last year from PNNL uh, and NREL talking about enhancing resiliency of buildings through energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. And essentially, the punchline of this study is that you know, by moving buildings to being uh, compliant with at least the 2021 IEC, IECC, but even more importantly going all the way to passive, and specifically they called out FIAS standards, um, yeah. that there can be a dramatic improvement in survivability for occupants if there was an event where the grid were to implode. So let's imagine mm -hmm. here we are sloppily installing, yeah. you know, inappropriately sized and selected heat pumps, and that in combination with, you know, some extreme weather causes a, a collapse of the grid. If you have the existing building stock, that poses a risk to people's health. So, you know, Isaac, you're a policy guy. You're a codes guy. You know, what do we always hear? Energy codes, they're not life safety standards. We don't care about those energy codes. They, they're not uh, worthy in the same way as, you know, gas and fire code and things like that. Yeah, I'm sorry, folks, but buildings can keep people alive if done appropriately. And that's what this study shows, that basically... Um, in several climates, let's just take Atlanta. There's a lot of building down south. And I think people would go, eh, screw it. You don't need to do passive house down south. It's not that, uh, it's more moderate. Well, but what it found is if you go all the way to FIAS, uh, that you can increase the habitability compared to the existing building stock by like five times. Um, and significantly better than even the 2021 IECC. Um, and this is not FIAS producing the study. This is coming from the, a federal government research study. Um, and so, you know, in Portland, Oregon, again, you know, increasing the survivability in, in summertime in an extreme climate event, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, so, you know, same thing here in Detroit, you know, it, it doesn't get you quite as farther, but it'll buy you another day if you go all the way to FIA standards versus, you know, you're, you're going to be shivering and potentially not doing very well in an existing building where I live uh, in the dead of winter, unfortunately. So we got to move people potentially to these higher building performance standards for survivability, for resilience. So, um, you know, there's a lot more that goes into passive house than just trying to prime us for net zero. I think that that's sort of the obvious, but I really like hearing from you, Lisa, that the program is setting higher ambitions to really talk about you know, essentially the goals of creating healthy, resilient, and climate-friendly buildings into the future. 
Right, and our, our senior scientists kind of coined that passive building is a, a, a shield and a sword toward climate change because the resilience aspect of outages and more natural disasters is kind of the shield to that. And then the sword to it with slashing emissions and reducing you know, operational emissions in buildings. So I kind of like that approach and thinking about it from both, both perspectives. Right. Well, that's awesome. You know, and going back to Isaac, you know, as a policy professional, you've really been busy here because there are huge <laughs> opportunities for building to FIA standards um, that are coming into building codes all around the country. Uh, in segment one, our news section, uh, I showed basically an update from Illinois, uh, the, the home state where FIAS is based, uh, where in Illinois, um, for both the base code, which is based off the 2021 IUCC, as well as the stretch code, homes can demonstrate compliance with the code by building FIAS. Were you involved in that process, Isaac? Uh, yes, I was, uh, particularly in the Oh, actually, in both, I've been involved in the. I was involved in the, um, in the base code development, uh, and both in the base code and the stretch code development. Um, I also want to add that that's also been included in the Chicago, in the new Chicago code as well. Okay, so it's great. got um, full coverage across the state. Um, and I and and one of the reasons that it's been successful and I want to get to Massachusetts in just a second, but one of the reasons it's been successful and I think it's something I want to, I also want to emphasize is the work that FIAS does to certify the buildings um, provides um, kind of a third party approach to make, to ensuring that buildings are meeting the, both the FIAS standard and essentially, essentially code. Um, I won't tell you who, but I was told specifically by a person in Chicago that the reason FIAS was included as part of the alternative compliance path that you just mentioned is because this is a way for them to um, have certainty that the energy side of the of the equation is going to be handled well, um, because a lot of code, of, you know, a lot of municipalities have always had. Um, issues and, and constraints about being able to do full compliance. So they can then focus on those things that you were talking about. They can focus on fire safety, they can focus on structural, um, knowing that the energy side through FIAS is covered. Um, and that um, gives you a kind of both an incentive to move forward on, on more advanced codes, but also the incentive to make sure that they're done correctly. Um, yeah, you know, Sandy, we've been hearing this all over the place <clears throat> the last few years, you know, yep. third party verification energy codes and the value that provides the municipalities. What do you think about this? You know, the, the city of Chicago saying, you know, we're we're going to go ahead and we're going to adopt FIAS, you know, as an alternative compliance because we know it's going to be done right. I think it's I think it's a, a testament to what the Raiders are doing. And I think that, you know, one opportunity, you know, that we've talked a lot about in the resident realm, right, is, you know, the push, you know, and our training for the IEC residential energy inspector plans examiner and the fact that we can have, you know, we're the experts, right? So why wouldn't we enforce this energy side of these things? So I think it makes complete sense and it it really falls in line with, I think, where the market is going eventually anyway, um, you know, where your, your rater is going to be your energy code compliance expert and push the envelope to making sure that that compliance is, is correct. Right. Yeah. 
Well, you know, so, I mean, Illinois, big opportunities there, but even bigger, you know, again, we mentioned I just taught a class of 25 verifiers in, in the city of Boston. The reason why is the state of Massachusetts has adopted not only a stretch code, but also a specialized opt-in code, which goes even beyond the stretch code. And this specialized opt-in code has been adopted by the city of Boston, and it requires essentially all new multifamily buildings over 12,000 square feet, which is most of them, to be FIAS certified. Is that correct, Isaac? Yeah, and um, I'll go even. For, I mean, I'll go even farther. It's been adopted by the city of Boston in 32 other municipalities across the state. It's covering about a third of the population, uh, and it includes some of the uh, cities, some of the major secondary cities. It covers Cambridge, Brookline, Somerville, Watertown, um, Newton. Uh, so a lot of the, the major population centers are covered here. And um, that's what's driving, and it goes back to it, that's what's driving the verifier training. All of a sudden, there's a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of verifiers, a lot of raiders in the state of Massachusetts who are seeing that there's going to be probably on the order of about 100 to 120 multifamily buildings built in the state in a given year based on, on previous construction levels. Now, we don't know how that changes, but if you kind of go back to 2019, the 33 cities built about 110, 115 multifamilies. Those are all going to have to be passive house. Folks, this is mind-blowing. Like, this is not like little stuff. This is a big catalyzing change. You're talking about a significantly progressive state in Massachusetts that sort of is, a, in a lot of ways, a leading edge for a lot of the rest of the country. Adopting and enforcing that in some of the major population centers, all multifamily buildings have to be passive buildings. This is a tremendous opportunity, but I'd imagine it also poses a little bit of a challenge, right, Isaac? I mean, so because, you know, when I got involved in this, I mean, don't get me wrong, there was a lot of energy around passive buildings, but frankly speaking, it was like, you know, the cool kids club for the want, you know, for the true believer environmentalists, you know, the people who were doing this because they thought it was the right thing to do. Um, and some of them who were ahead of the curve in terms of knowing that it was a business savvy thing to do. But now we're moving away from the realm of the true believers to basically just the shrewd business people building buildings and they may have been planning these buildings for years and now they have to build them passive house has that been a challenge at all for you in having to kind of deal with more of that sort of market developer you know facing side of of uh, of the development cycle well I, yes and and i kind of i kind of view it um the metaphor that i keep thinking about is it's a it's a little bit of a wall um and on one side is the existing kind of construction, existing construction uh, infrastructure. On the other side of the wall is FIAS. And so what we really are working in terms of training and, and in development and in experience is getting these people over that wall. Um, and it's going to be a little bumpy. 
Um, but that's the part that's really interesting because we're in transition phase. So there's a lot of people, as you said, they're no longer just the true believers, but there's a lot of people who are saying, okay, you know, developers, and this includes developers, architects, engineers, right? Mechanical engineers who have to work through this, um, structural engineers, uh, builders, subcontractors, right? All the electricians, all the carpenters, um, who now have to think through kind of a slightly different or a somewhat different uh, way of constructing that they're used to. Um, uh, we're in that phase where uh, we are getting all these people, this kind of second, the, the second, the second group, not just the, not just the, the leading edge people, but the second group trained and comfortable and experienced with this. Um, and that's kind of, and that's in a sense really the exciting, in a sense, the, the really exciting part, because once that second group, which is a much larger group than the, you know, the true believers that you were talking about, become comfortable with these and experience with these, then all of a sudden um, the, the market opens up um, because all of a sudden these people are no longer hesitant. The developers are no longer hesitant to build the fees uh, because they know how to do it. And they realize, hey, this isn't going to be a particularly, there's, there's a small, if any, maybe in some cases, none, no incremental cost. And we have the construction, we have all the carpenters, we have the electricians, we have the plumbers, we have the GCs, we have the verifiers um, who can do this. And so what really is, is like right now we're in that transition phase because the code just got, the code came into effect more or less in January um, for, for, the, for, the, for, for a number of the main cities, including Boston. So we are, we are in the front end of this, but when we get to the other side of that wall, um, it'll be almost like, why didn't we do this from the beginning? I know that so, sounds. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree. I mean, I'm just, I, I'm agreeing with you wholeheartedly. I kind of think about it like, you know, I, I got my career started right around the time that lead was starting to become a little bit more mainstream, um, you know, and back then everybody and their mom was becoming a lead AP because it was the new thing to do. And, you know, you know, and I think leads taken a lot of, you know, uh, they've taken a lot of criticism for maybe not focusing on energy performance enough. Um, you know, and, and probably rightfully so, but I will say the thing that they've done successfully is nobody knew what a VOC was or anything in terms of, you know, you know, better building materials back in, 2008 2009 but when everybody went through this training uh and to understand it now it's mainstream now all of these products in the big box stores are labeled for this stuff and you know rank and file general laborers and contractors they know a, a thing or two about green building practices and so right. you know similar to like you know back in 2009 with the 2009 iecc you know, blower door testing was not mandatory by code before. All of a sudden, then blower door and duct blaster testing became mandatory. And like, it took a while to, for people to pick it up. And there's still some areas of the country that still don't know that it's a requirement. But nevertheless, there's a lot more just general contractors, you know, who understand that this stuff exists. You know, Sandy, how did you see things change in, in the residential sector just from, you know, the advance of energy codes? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, you know, I watched it when, 
you know, you know, basically when I got into this business, you know, you had your true believers, you, you know, and I, I started on the direct provider side working for large national organizations, you know, and, you know, we did a lot of co-compliance stuff, you know, in areas that was required, but, you know, mostly hers ratings or energy star were the true believers of the companies that, you know, used energy as a pillar of their, their value proposition or as a market separation device, right? Because, you know, you, you compare it to a code home and you could use that, you know, where I've seen it just with the advance of code, you know, once people get to, to used to doing duck blasters and blower door for code, then it's not so hard to go to hers. It's not so hard to go to Energy Star. And they start as code in, as, as advanced, it's become more and more um, reasonable and makes more sense for the builders and, 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 and et cetera. So I think that there's been, you know, a major opportunity. And that kind of brings me to a question for you guys is that, you know, my whole career, you know, almost going on 20 years, I've heard nothing but, oh, it costs so much money. It costs so much money. And no one ever talks about ROI, though, right? I mean, everybody talks about initial costs, but nobody talks about the return on investment. I'd like to hear you guys' perspective on that because, you know, I, and, you know, when I, when I ask that question, I mean, you know, you could take it from any perspective that you want, but like, you know, what are the, you know, like about what, how much more does it cost, say, to build a passive house, you know, versus, you know, what the return on investment is? Because I think that's important for people to know. I, I think we have to view it from a, a very a, a holistic perspective in that um, right now we're looking in Massachusetts where there is where the infrastructure is growing and is improving. We're looking at about a two to three percent incremental cost. Yes, no. um, yeah. Um, and I think part of the reason is, is that a lot of the, the work that we've done beforehand primed the market, increased the experience, and increased the knowledge. And as the increasing of as we increased the knowledge, the experience, the comfort level, um, where people learn how to do designs for FIAS up front, um, where people brought in all of the all of the various um, construction professionals up front and did the designs. Um, and did a, a holistic designs, thinking with Theus in as part of the as part of it. Um, we've seen the construction incremental costs drop. So it's not even a matter. I mean, the ROI is very important. You're looking at a thirty to forty percent improvement over code. But but what's more important is that the cost itself will drop. We've seen it almost everywhere. Yeah. Um, and that just comes in from from experience, and that comes in from comfort levels. And that was the perfect yeah. answer because you know I, I I I call BS on that whole narrative, right? I mean, it's gotten to the point now where I mean, you think about a 30, 40 percent ROI for a two percent investment is incredible, you know. Um, and that's you know thanks to the work you guys have done in the past, and you know the work of many building performance professionals and construction people, learning, understanding, and products and all the things that have happened today um so that was a great answer and i appreciate that isaac yeah lisa what's you what do you think what's your take uh i just want to get back to this wall analogy um and what you guys have been talking about i'd really like to turn that into a ramp i don't think it's a wall i don't think passive building really is on the other side of this unknown territory especially with what chris and sandy were just saying like building energy codes and things over time have advanced the market and we're slowly kind of building to that high performance level. So when we're talking about incremental cost, the question is, what's the baseline? 
Um, so if you're looking in somewhere that's already almost at the top of that ramp with really good energy codes and has you know, a trained market, the incremental cost is really low. Um, but if you're looking at somewhere at the bottom of that ramp uh, and you know, they don't have energy codes and they have to meet fees, the incremental cost could be 10%. You know, it's like, what is it relative to? And I think that's been one of the most challenging conversations for us, you know, to, to, for others to understand is that there isn't a sure. sweet spot number, but if you get the same types of buildings and the same climate, like Massachusetts, for example, we are seeing real data to one to 3% incremental cost. And then the savings depends on, you know, what do you pay for your utilities in the jurisdiction? And are those prices increasing? You actually could get more savings than you originally predicted with kind of the volatility of um, utility and electricity pricing moving forward. So it's variable, but we know it pays back. Yeah. And I'll just say, you know, if you all have more interest in this, you want to understand what this program is really about, get involved, go take a training. Honestly, uh, I learned so much from Lisa uh, when I took uh, the uh, CPHC training. Uh, it was mind blowing. Uh, when I first got involved with the program back in the 2013, 2014, something like that. Um, you know, I thought I knew a lot about building science until I took class with Lisa. And then, then I learned that there's a lot more to the details of it. Um, but, you know, I think once you start to really get involved, you start to realize a lot of this is just common sense. Like, take where you're at, Sandy. Uh, let's just not allow all the sun to come in the windows at, at bad times where they, we're not going to be able to make use of it. Like, let's just design the building a little bit more practically. That's more. Again, what this je ne sais quoi, what is passive? Smash the loads, heating and cooling. Can we reduce these loads so that we don't have to throw so much mechanical energy at it, amongst other things? All right. Unfortunately, we do got to wrap up here. But before we do, I just got to say, have you all seen, have you watched The Curse? Uh -huh. Yes, I have. Oh, she's watched The Curse. Uh, Paramount Plus is uh not so uh, not so it's somewhat panned um because it's weird it's just a weird show uh it's kind of creepy kind of cringy but they talk about passive buildings the the theme of this series is that there is a couple that is somewhat dysfunctional and egotistical trying to save an impoverished neighborhood outside of santa fe new mexico with building passive buildings uh, and this is what they think a passive building looks like. Uh, apparently, you have to have mirror uh, faces on the outside of a cube uh, for it to be passive building. But honestly, the, the show talks about some things that are right about passive house, you know, reducing thermal bridging and, you know, better insulation details. There's a blower door scene where they're testing mm -hmm. with smoke, you know, um, but it also gets a lot of things wrong about passive buildings. It implies that you cannot have mechanical heating and cooling in them. Uh, but I don't know, Lisa, what's your take on this show? It, it, a blessing and a curse, not right. no pun intended with yeah, the title. A curse, um, right? I, was, <laughs> I was so excited to see a show that actually said passive house. I had people like sending it to me. And then as it goes on, I'm like, oh, I wish like some of this was just more true. And then the show just got, gets like crazier and crazier. So it's like, oh, I wish it was just introduced in a setting that wasn't so satirical. Um, but either way, I think it's going to bring light to a concept. Um, I did just send a, a link around that um, someone from Sunset Magazine reached out to us to kind of debunk what passive building is after this show. So I think it's gonna bring a little more attention to the concept and we have the opportunity to say, 
no, there's not going to be air pockets in your building. You're not going to get stuck to the ceiling. You know, weird <laughs> things that happened in this show that, you know, you don't need to air seal your baby's yeah. room to keep them comfortable. Ignore the last episode. Uh, yeah. And, and, and you'll so, be all good. I, yeah. I, I'm glad it happened, but I wish it was um, in a different show that was less. Hey, you know what? You know, no press is bad press, right? If we're talking about right, passing right. buildings in the mainstream, show and board or testing in the mainstream. Uh, cool. Even if it's in a weird and creepy uh, type of show, that's all <laughs> good deal. All right. Thanks very much, folks. Thanks for being on the BearCast. And we look forward to more awesome opportunities for the Passive House Institute U.S. moving forward in the future. Take Thanks, care. guys. Thanks. This is awesome. Thanks so much for having us. All right, segment three here, Sandy, real quick. We're not going to go on too much longer because people have been telling us, Sandy, Chris, y'all run your mouth too much. We love the Bearcats, <laughs> but you all got to wrap it up. They got they got the old wrap it up box, you know, and come on, wrap it up, wrap it up. We all know from the Chappelle show. Um, I can't help myself. I just, I love talking this stuff with Sandy. But uh, last time that you and I spoke, we were looking into the NFL playoffs and my Detroit Lions, we were like, we're not sure if these guys are going to get out of the first round. Not only did they get out of the first round, they won two playoff games. They went to the NFC championship and they blew it. <laughs> no, they blew it. They were so close. They were they had a 19 point lead or whatever it was going into the third quarter. And then gambling Dan Campbell Mas Cajones, bro. What was I telling you, Sandy? He lost that game. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, I, let's call let's call it is what it is. Um, but I will say this: you shouldn't be disappointed. They had a great season. And remember, if you look back at the history of great teams, they usually lose their first championship game, and then they come back roaring the next year. Usually, so you know, I I, I would say that the future is very bright for Detroit. So let's talk about the Super Bowl itself, because I think that's the more interesting part of this whole thing. And, you know, there's a lot of already people going on and on about Patrick, uh, Patrick Mahomes and his greatness. And I don't think it's illegitimate, but they've already started to unseat Tom Brady as the greatest of all time. And I would just say we might need to slow down on that a little bit. Um, you know, I think that. He has definitely cemented himself. I mean, look, he won that game for them, you know, against the 49ers. There's no question about that. The, the guy is a great player. Um, and he's probably one of the best ever. There's, there's no question about that. Don't quite think he unseated Brady yet, though. Um, you know, let me see what it looks like in 20 years, you know. Um, you know, we got to remember that, right? Brady had a 20-plus year career uh, winning the Super Bowl in his, you know, 40s um with the with the buccaneers after they said they couldn't do it after being with the same team all those years to win six he won seven right so um but besides that i think what we saw in the super bowl was two evenly matched teams but one had a better quarterback that that's how i would sum it up and the difference between brock purdy and patrick mahomes is patrick mahomes is a better quarterback and in the end he won it what do you think about that chris yeah, no doubt. I mean, San Francisco, I will say, you know, as much as the as the Lions 
blew it in their game against San Francisco, I, I think that the, that the 49ers totally blew it. There was so many missed opportunities for them yep. to take advantage of mistakes and fairly, frankly speaking, just lethargic play by uh, by the Chiefs. Honestly, I got I hate to say it, but that was the boring bowl. Three quarters of that game were yeah. a sleeping pill. It, it was on pace to be the worst Super Bowl of all time. And oh, it was it like yawn. Yeah, I mean, it, it picked up the pace there in the fourth quarter, and they went to overtime, so for a somewhat dramatic ending. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, all credit where credit is due. Patrick Mahomes pulled it out big for my buddies down there in Kansas City. I get, We got some Raiders down there that are couldn't be happier um and so i'm happy for them obviously i was salty about the 49ers so i'm fine with them losing i'm i'm happy to rep my my midwestern team the kansas city chiefs uh i think it's it's too soon to be you know putting the stamp uh on mahomes quite yet but he's got a lot of room to continue to grow and develop like he's he's you know honestly the, the sky is the limit he really has the potential. I mean, I would almost be interested to see at their respective ages who's ahead, you know, and I'm not a big enough football nerd to have looked that up, but I don't know. You, you got I think they're pretty, I think they're pretty actually neck and neck, actually. I think they're pretty neck and neck. Mahomes going to be 30. And I think at the age 30, I think um, if I remember correctly, I think Brady already had three Super Bowls. So I, I think they're, they're pretty much neck and neck. Now, as far as stats, I'm not exactly sure. Um, you know, the stat thing is a whole nother. <laughs> that's a giant mountain to climb to with Brady, right? I mean, the guy that owns, you know, between him and Peyton Manning, they own almost every record in the NFL, right? So, um, you know, look, the thing about football is this, Chris. Longevity means a lot. You know, coaching means a lot. Andy Reid's an offensive genius, you know, um, but he's getting up there, right? It's pretty old. Um, so we'll see, you know. Um, you know, Brady had Belichick in his 50s, you know, Mahomes has Andy Reid in his late 60s, you know, so how long is that going to last? When when does Andy Reid hang him up and say, I had enough, you know? Um, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of factors there, but no doubt. Kudos, look, they deserved it. They won. The better quarterback prevailed, period, no matter what anybody wants to say. And I think that next year, I'm looking forward to see what the what your Lions can do. Uh, in a division. I know my Giants are going to suck, so it's going to be, you know, I I guess I might have to come a pseudo Detroit fan next year, you know? Hey, man, we'll, we'll, we'll let you on the, on the, on the train. It's all good. Um, Well, you know, this may be us wrapping up our football chatter here for a few episodes. Instead, we're going to be turning to political football. And uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to hear a little bit of Sandy and I, and I mouthing off about some other topics that are near and dear to us beyond sports. But we appreciate you listening to this episode, and we're going to put a bow on it here. Uh, We will be back here very soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Peace.